Hello, and welcome to The Word on the Hill with the Lanky Guys. My name is Father Peter Bussett. My name is Scott Powell. Uh, very good. Well, friends, um, we are uh, just want to let you know that um, just with the circumstances of life and how things are going, we're going to be taking a hiatus over the summertime. So so this is going to be our last podcast for a, a number of weeks. And um, and uh, and so uh, please thank you and please and thank you. Please and thank you. That's that's good. That's very yeah, polite yeah, yeah. of you. <laughs> yeah. um, some of you have probably noticed and I haven't been uh, I don't think I've hidden it. But I haven't been very explicit about it. We've had a lot of reruns over the last few weeks. And, and um, because we have this wonderful backlog of all th- nine years of all the liturgical cycles, um, sometimes we recycle old podcasts if we're not available to be together. And so we've been doing that a lot. And I think some of you have noticed that um, the... Um, yeah, they're a little bit less fresh. We, we the, the podcast needs to needs needs a breather. The podcast yep. needs a vacation. It's yeah. been it's been running itself ragged for a while now. And so um but again, maybe you've noticed that we don't uh, always sound super fresh or like ourselves and maybe you've heard a rerun. Um but we are going to uh, yeah, put it on vacation for a little bit, but we do ask that you check back with us on our platforms and everything else come the fall and we're going to have some new interesting things for you guys to check out. Absolutely. So uh, with that, uh, we are in the 13th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Yes, we are. And uh, Which so- is all about death. Not vacation, <laughs> but death. I know. It's like, it's like, welcome to Hawaii, death. You're like, oh, it's really, <laughs> that's, that's really sad. Welcome to Hawaii. Vacations? Yeah, the vacation. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's exactly. That's reasonable. Exactly. Reasonable. So. reasonable. Our first reading is from The Wisdom of Solomon, mm. uh, chapter 1, 13 to 15, Jumping to 2.23 to 24. Yes, indeed. Our responsorial psalm is coming from Psalm 30, verse 2, 4, 5 to 6, 11, 12, and 13, with the response itself coming from 2a. And then our second reading is from 2 Corinthians, um, uh, verse 8, 7, jumping to 9, and then going to 13 to 15. Yes, indeed. That's a bit piecemeal. But uh, our gospel, we're going to do the long form of the gospel today, Father Peter. Really? We never do the long form. Father Peter. Yes, we do. It's uh, Mark chapter 5, excuse me, verse 21 through 43. All of these readings are about death. They really are. Even the ones that don't mention death are about death. I didn't notice the ones that, are you doing the psalm? No, 2 Corinthians is about about finances. Oh, yeah. And I will argue to you it's about death. Does, uh, yeah, no, Psalm 30 talks about death, right? Oh, yeah, my morning into dancing. Pits. Morning into dancing. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yes, Sheol. Um, I have to give a uh, recommendation slash shout out. And a, a number of you um, over the course of the years have often written to ask about what resources we use or what are our favorite books or commentaries. And <clears throat> so much of, of kind of what we put into this, like we, we both have kind of our favorite books and our favorite commentaries. But for me, it's, you know, they're so scattered. Like I'll go to this book for this thing and I'll go to that commentary for this book of the Bible. You know, it's hard to find kind of a one-stop shop. And I um, I am a little ashamed to admit that I hesitated for a long time pulling the trigger and buying uh, John Bergsma and Brant Petrie's fantastic A Catholic Introduction to the Bible 
partially because I really wanted to write it myself and I was mad that they got to it first because <laughs> it was a concept that I had that I was sort of actually putting pen to paper with and they did it better, a hundred times better than I could have ever done it. And so I was kind of bitter about that. So I didn't get it, but I love it. This is one of the greatest pieces of biblical scholarship, Catholic biblical scholarship on the market today. It's absolutely fantastic. Really? Um, and I just want to give that recommendation. It's a beefy book. It's a beast it's of huge, a book. Actually. And this is only the Old Testament. But it's basically everything you need to know about every single book of the Old Testament, their background, their sources, where it fits in the liturgy, all the stuff that goes into it. And it's great. And Brant Petrie and John Bergsmeyer, two are my favorites. I just, I love these guys. So um, I highly recommend, it's called A Catholic Introduction to the Bible, the Old Testament. Maybe I can beat them on the New Testament and write that one first. Um, but that being said, I um, spent a little bit of time on their chapter on Wisdom of Solomon, and I found a really interesting insight about okay. wisdom. Talk Do you have me. anything to say about wisdom no, before? No, I mean, not, not, I, um, Start saying I, started, I started looking at a couple of translation words on it, but, the, um, but no, I have nothing to say. I wanted to take credit for this myself, and I'm sure other people have said it, but because I read it literally this morning, I have to credit <laughs> Bergsman and Petrie. They make the argument, they make a small argument that um, wisdom of Solomon is actually a response to the book of Ecclesiastes, mm. which is interesting. So you have what are um, the... the um, the books that are written either by or in the honor of or with the name attached of Solomon, right? So Solomon is the one we often attach the wisdom books to, right? So Wisdom of Solomon is the full name of this book. Um, Proverbs were ascribed to Solomon. Ecclesiastes. Um, Koheleth is probably Solomon. Uh, and what's the other one? Oh, Song of Songs. Song of Solomon is up. So the, the Salamic, is that what they call it? Yeah, the Salamic, what, oh, what do they call them? Um... Oh, I lost, I lost it. But um, I think they're called the, the Salamic tradition, right? The books in honor of or written by Solomon show his progression. And we know Solomon's life took some weird turns in there, but they sort of all show his progression of understanding of what wisdom actually is. So you have the Proverbs sort of come first, and this is just these explications of these these wise sayings, which are probably speaking to this point in life, you know, that we read about, I think it's in Second Kings, where Solomon is pursuing this wisdom and people from other parts of the world are coming to seek out his wisdom and wise King Solomon. But it is, it's a very almost surface level understanding of, of wisdom, like wise sayings, nice little syllogisms that you can say. By the time you get to Ecclesiastes, it's rough and everything is terrible. Oh, this it's is, awful. Ecclesiastes yeah. is one of the worst books in the Bible, Met, purposely so, because it's showing, um, it, it's raising this question of, is there any value in anything? Vanity of oh, vanities, all things are vanities. And it's supposedly demonstrating Solomon as he's acquired all of this wealth and all of this stuff and all of these houses and palaces and women and all this different stuff and how he's realizing now, probably toward the end of his life, that it's all meaningless. It's all worthless. I've spent my entire life trying to build up riches and wealth and prestige and everything else. And it's all meaningless vanity. It's all just vanity and everything in life. Now that he's approaching death, that he sees death on the horizon, it's all meaningless. It's all valueless. It's all nothing. And the book kind of ends and you're like, uh, <laughs> that, that, uh, the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, the, um, uh, father Jim, he's like, he's like, how is this even scripture? Yeah. Like, like, which is, is the question. I mean, it's like, I, I look at it still and you're just like, this is, the, this is like, people love this book if they're in total despair. I, well, I, but it gives the wrong answer to despair. Right. That's the thing about the book. And that's why it's in the Bible because sometimes the Bible 
is not just saying things that are good and happy and fuzzy feeling and uplifting. They're speaking into truths. And there is a truth about the way that many people perceive the world. Right. Either it's all about me, look out for number one, acquire as much stuff as you can, or, well, and that experience tends to bring with it a meaninglessness. Once you actually have all those things and you realize those actually didn't bring me happiness, they didn't bring me fulfillment. Wisdom of Solomon is the antidote for Ecclesiastes. You cannot really have Ecclesiastes without the antidote that comes in Wisdom of Solomon. And it says that, well, no, maybe it's not all vanity, but this idea of seeking after wealth and seeking after things and prestige, that actually doesn't bring us happiness either. It's the attainment of true wisdom, which is only attained through righteousness, through justice, through trying to discern the will of God in our lives. That's where true happiness lies. And he comes to this conclusion that maybe death is not as to be feared as I thought it was. Because if the end of life is just getting as much stuff as you can and then you die, then what's the point? But if maybe death is not as scary as we think it is, the closer we get to that point, and we realize that what it means to live is to discern the will of God in the world, and that's what true wisdom actually is, then maybe death is not as scary as it seemed. And it is, I think, one of the most theologically... It is one of the most theologically significant Old Testament books for understanding the concept of the gospel and the New Testament. All of the things that will be extracted and explicated by Jesus in the New Testament as to what is the purpose of life, wisdom probably gets the closest than any other book of the, of the Bible hmm. in pointing toward the end, the telos of humanity that Jesus reveals to us in that death is not the answer. So this this portion we have here, God did not make death. He doesn't rejoice in the destruction of the living for he fashioned, because Koheleth in, in Ecclesiastes seems to think like, well, is this just some cruel game that someone is playing? He sounds like Descartes or one of the modernist philosophers, right? <laughs> of there, There's all these things that were, are we just being manipulated by some evil mastermind God this, deity yeah, out there who's just trying to mess with us all. Deceive us entirely. Yeah. yeah, and he's like, no, that's not who God is. God doesn't rejoice in our destruction. He loves what is. He fashioned all things that they might have being. The creatures of the world are wholesome. There's not a destructive drug among them, nor any domain of the netherworld on earth. For justice is undying. God formed man to be imperishable. Catch that. This is the Old Testament talking about the immortality of humanity. That is one of the most explicit references to immortality of the soul and resurrection that we actually get in the Old Testament that whoever the author of this, whether it's Solomon or someone in Solomon's tradition, actually gets to the image of his own nature. He made him by the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and they who belong to his company experience it. But that's not God's will for us. I don't know. I think it's really it's a really beautiful answer to the questions deep within humanity. Yeah. This is uh, this precedes for those of you who um, have ever been to a funeral. This precedes the oh. the um, the main funeral reading. The souls of the just right. are in the hands of God, mm. and no torment shall touch them. So, in a certain sense, this is actually kind of where um, you know where we're looking of saying, yeah. yeah, God is God is good. He actually is going to take care. Like like. Which I like the the idea that like he actually really cares for us and that we, it's not just everything's vanity and destroying and there's nothing new and that we're all going to just explode and go into nothing. But that sometimes you need to experience the deep questions of vanity, oh, vanities, everything is meaningless to get to the other side to realize, oh, no, I actually do see that God is still here. I still experience those things. I still right. experience that pain, but 
Now, and that's what wisdom is. That's the conclusion of the book, is that is what it means to attain wisdom, to see the realities of the world and be able to pull back the curtain and see where God is actually operative, despite what I experience, despite the pain, despite death and its reality in the world, where is God actually operating? Right. Which is what true wisdom is. Absolutely. Which leads us into the psalm. Yeah. Let, let's hear it. What do we got? <laughs> Tell me. Talk I, to see, me. I see how you go. Thanks, uh, man. I, I talked a lot in the first reading. Yeah, yeah. I praise you, Lord, for you raise me up and you don't let my enemies rejoice over me. Like, this is part of the thing is that as we're looking and we're saying, like, why? what are you going to go through in your life? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you actually going through? And, and like, uh, oftentimes we, um, I, I come back to this this line of scripture that just says like you will not leave us crushed. Yeah. Like you're you're not and, and like and you're in the sight of my foes. I'm not gonna like everything is, is that act, the Psalms. Is that night prayer or something? It's a, like I can't remember where yeah, it comes yeah. from. I know what you're I, talking about. and I can't. Yeah, hear. yeah, yeah. You will not it's leave powerful. us crushed. It's powerful. Though. You'll not leave us crushed before them. Yeah. So so yeah. here we are. It's like, okay, if we believe and if we actually are going to answer the suffering of our life with God is is actually going to care for us in death, mm-hmm. then we sing and we say, you know, okay, well then it's scary to be humble when a lot of stuff's coming towards you. It's it's uh, when you're when you're saying like, okay, well, I'm really going to put my trust in you and it's not going to look it's not going to look right. So don't let my enemies rejoice over me because we all are going to make enemies. And so, and he says, I praise you, Lord, for you raised me up and you didn't let my enemies rejoice over me. You, you, you took me and like all of that stuff that I had to go through, we were talking about the, in the, um, in, uh, in Van Ecclesiastes, everything that we have to go through, he's like, okay, well then, you know, I'm going to accomplish this. And then here's the song that says, okay, you did it like there's nothing like actually the moment yes. after like when yeah. you have lived in faith when you're like yeah. lord i ain't seeing nothing and all of a sudden now you're live in god and and the story and the narrative and the meaning of what you just went through is actually coming that is it at dusk weeping comes but mm. at dawn there's rejoicing i love that line yeah y- you can make an argument that psalm 30 is is almost a psalm um prefiguring or imagining the resurrection because yeah in in all of our lives we will we will have enemies there are always going to be that but the ultimate enemy with the capital e is death itself it's the evil one and it's death what does jesus come to destroy what is not going to crush us death is not going to crush us what is solomon realizing death is not the end death is not the ultimate telos of humanity because there is an immortality that God has called. That can't be the end. Even though this experience of the fear and the horror of all these things, there is this latent hope inside of all of human beings that that's not going to be victorious, even though it feels like it's going to be. So this is a psalm about the resurrection, looking back, saying, I will praise you, Lord, because you did rescue me from death. You did. I will extol you because you did draw me near. You didn't let your my enemies rejoice over me. Death The evil one wants to rejoice over our despair. The evil one wants to rejoice over our crumbling in fear of the realities that face all of us, right? And he says, you didn't let them. Right. And I I like to say uh, in giving counsel to people that um, part of the reason why we go to despair is because it's sure. We're looking for some sort of stability. Wow, that's a horrifying and good insight. Right. You're like, okay, Jeez. well, I get to despair because it's not going to work out. 
Whereas wow. faith is uncertain and filled with adventure. And wow. and um, and hobbits, they don't go on adventures. So Until they do. Until they do. And then they yeah, show exactly. themselves twice to the people that they thought that they were. Tell you what, man. The first half of the whole book of The Hobbit really makes it clear why hobbits don't go on, go on adventures. That's a rough. It's a rough book. Anyway. <laughs> um, right? Right. Everything is miserable for for Bilbo. <laughs> I haven't read. I have. I read the Lord of the Rings every year, and I haven't read The Hobbit for like fifteen years. It's long. The Hobbit. Let's give, let's give it that. Yeah. Okay. It's not that long, but there's a lot of strife. I, I, the other day, I, I was. I, I don't know how I, I stumbled upon it, but I stumbled upon the old animated Hobbit. Oh my gosh! And it I was. Remember that. Yeah, and I remember on New Year's Eve, me and my brother, we were going to watch <laughs> the the and, uh, but then there was um. There was a Diet Coke commercial that says, just for the hell of it, Diet Coke. Seriously? Yeah, yeah. And so so I said- In just, the 80s? Yeah, yeah. And they then, couldn't say that in the yeah, 80s. Yeah, and then, and, then, uh, and then I said, just for the hell of it, Diet Coke. But then he, my brother thought I said, just for the Hobbit. So- <laughs> So I said halibut. He thought hobbit, but we but we tried to rent it at the store, but somebody had rented it for New Year's Eve, and our parents were going out, and so my brother just broke down weeping because um, I made a joke about the uh, the hobbit, but I said halibut, but then it was all about diet. There are so many layers to that story. I'm I know. titling the pil- the podcast just for the halibut. <laughs> just for the halibut. Is that all right? Am I yeah, allowed to do co- that? I think you are. I mean, it's not the '80s anymore, but it's not. No, it's, a, yeah, it's a new age. Um, well, on that note, we've come to Second Corinthians, um, which actually is, well, not maybe not the halibut part, but it, it does apply to everything else. So this seems to the untrained eye mm. like it might be the outlier. It's the one that doesn't really fit with the rest. One of these things is not, not like, like the other. other. Uh, so 2 Corinthians, this is, um, oh, what, how, do I, how do I get us in here? Um, it's not complicated. First Corinthians was is is one of the harshest books of the Bible. <laughs> Do you remember that we've talked about First Corinthians a lot? It's the one where Paul just lets loose on these, on this really corrupt, really um, decadent, really sin filled not just city but church within a decadent sin filled church uh, city where there's divisions among them. They're acting like babies. He said he excommunicates a guy. Um, you know, there's there's people being uh, uh, immodest and imprudent. All sorts of terrible things are going on in this church. And he just lays loose. He just he lets them have it. He corrects them. Um, but you get the impression that the Corinthians or the church in Corinth are not the kind of people who like being corrected. They don't like being called out. And so in between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, apparently there was an attack back at Paul. And they said, Paul, you are worthless. You are meaningless. You are, we don't like you. We don't think you're credible. And the main argument that, and, and we know this letter existed because Paul quotes it in 2 Corinthians. And he cites the things that they say about him. And their primary accusation against Paul as to why he's not a legitimate prophet. He's not a legitimate apostle. He's really no good as far as biblical figures go. And their main argument, do you remember this? Do you remember what their main argument against him is? Why he cannot be credible? No. Because he suffers. Because he gets so beat up. Look at you. You're always shipwrecked or you're ill or you're imprisoned or you're getting beat up by somebody or cast out of cities. You suffer too much. Therefore, you cannot be a legitimate apostle. Real apostles look like Moses. They like come down off mountains glowing white. They look like David, you know, defeating the lions and the bears. They look like real heroes. Paul, you're short in statue. You're not well-spoken. You're always sick. You are in prison all the time. You're shipwrecked. You're a mess. You're a disaster. You can't possibly be legit. 
And so there is the argument on its own terms. And then there's the very human reality that they're responding to the fact that they've been corrected and they have to find an ad hominem attack to make against Paul because they didn't want to be corrected. No, it's you, Paul. You're the problem. And Paul, I love the, the letter of 2 Corinthians because what Paul does in response is basically just cast himself headlong in it. He's like, fine, we're going there. Let's go all in. I am beat up. I do suffer. I am destroyed. I am cast down. I am, you know, all of these things. But it's only so that you can actually get a better image of the crucified Lord through me. And if you see me, and if I seem worthless and beat up and broken like a jar of clay, that's where the band Jars of Clay gets their name. It's actually from this book. I'm just a, a, an earthen vessel who's holding something great. And maybe God permitted me to be so beat up and so small and so poorly spoken and so everything else so that you never mistake the vessel for what the vessel holds. Hmm. And you never are tempted to make me more than I am because my job is to point you toward Jesus Christ. So if I'm beat up and if I'm abused and if I'm suffering, it's only because I share in my very body the sufferings of Jesus so that I can teach you how to suffer. That's kind of the overall theme of the book. What this has to do with that and everything we just talked about is that there's so so Second Corinthians is really about Paul's dealing with his own suffering, his reckoning spiritually in prayer and with the Corinthians over why these things are happening to him. But within that long um, um, kind of uh, reflection on what's happening, he gives two very practical pieces of teaching. Number one, and they have to do with things that the Corinthians are not doing well with. They're not, they're, they're struggling with two things. In this letter, they're struggling with a whole bunch of other things in 1 Corinthians, but here Paul points out two. Number one, they're not willing to break off social ties with people who are bad for them and who are leading them into sin. They're not willing to give up their social network for the sake of actually living clean, pure Christian lives. That's the one thing. The second thing is that they're not willing to part with their finances. They're not willing to give apparently a financial collection that he's trying to raise for the suffering church back in Jerusalem. Everybody's contributing for these Christians who are suffering profoundly except the Corinthians, and they don't want to part with their money. And what this tells us, those two things are that what the Corinthians don't want to do is suffer in any way, because it's going to be a suffering to break off those relationships, those social networks that are actually leading them into sin. That's going to be hard. That's going to make them look bad. That's going to make people talk behind their back. That's going to raise all sorts of things. They don't want to do it. It's also going to be hard if they actually have to give something from their finances, but it's my money. I raised, I made it myself. I did all these things. Yeah. You're not supposed to suffer. He said, he said, I don't want you to go into poverty so that they can become rich, but my gosh, the church is suffering and you are part of the church. And if you can't separate yourself from your money in the time of their need, then really you're not trusting God that he's going to take care of you if you submit yourself to him. The Corinthians problem is that suffering is a corollary of death for them. Suffering has always been a corollary of death. That's why we don't want to suffer. Even if a person is like, well, I'm not really afraid of death. I'm perfectly, you know, except it's just a part of life. We're all afraid of suffering and suffering is just a corollary of death. And what Paul is saying is going back to this tradition from wisdom and into the psalm that I know it seems like this is going to crush you. Even this thing that is so relatively small of separating yourself with some of your money. I know it feels like it's going to crush you. I can't possibly do that. I can't possibly break off these relationships. I can't possibly, you know, make my, my moral stances on things that the church teaches known to my friends and my social network. I can't, I can't possibly do that because I might suffer loss. And Paul's like, oh, let me tell you, suffering loss is the only way to really enter into this. 
That's what Koheleth didn't understand in Ecclesiastes. That's what wisdom gets to, is that death will not crush us. That's what the psalm says. Your enemies will not prevail against you if only you unite yourself to the suffering of Jesus. Suffering on its own is just suffering. Suffering united to Jesus Christ is glorification. Hmm. That's how I think this actually does indeed fit with the rest of the, the readings. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And which it says, whoever had much did not have more and whoever had little did not have less. Like that, that, um, that there's a certain, it's interesting because you can, at first you go, oh, that's actually going to be the reality of money. But in reality, he's saying, no, Christ became poor so that you might become rich. That, 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 that we're in this actually together. Yeah. And that, that the Lord actually has a pattern of life and that you actually have to believe in this and, mm. and, for, and to remember that like, yes, you might touch suffering. You might actually have to go touch death. You might have to touch oh, those things. I see what you're doing here. Oh, really oh that's masterful stroke there. So, and, but but that's that. But it's not to the diminishment because it actually the Lord has has profoundly economical. Wow. Well, well played there. Hey, you know, this Reverend is, Father. Thank you, sir. This is uh, we got twelve and twelve coming. So, dude, what a. Uh... What a segue! That's the yeah. best segue I think you've ever had. I think so too. I think that uh, we uh, we got. Some... Did you prepare that beforehand, or is that just no? Off that, the, that was off from the what fly. you were. That was what you were Ooh-wee. talking about. It's just that's why you study. So what happens <laughs> is right, right? Isn't isn't that the whole way where like if you are immersed in scripture mm-hmm. and as you're talking, the then you get to make connections and yeah, like yeah, and the yeah. connections are profound and then all of a sudden you when somebody else is talking especially in the spirit you're like yeah. this is what we got to do so so Oof. that was given by uh somebody other than me well it was very good so we're in mark and we're in um we're we're smack in the middle of what's called a mark and sandwich <laughs> so mark loves sandwich he loves he loves it's the technical theological term is an intercalation but it's this thing that mark does it's this literary feature throughout the whole book where he'll take um two uh, like a beginning and an ending of a story and he'll smash something else. He'll sandwich something else in the middle of it. Right. right? Um, and this is a great example of a Mark and sandwich. This is uh, the, the sandwich of the synagogue official sandwich. Maybe you could say gyrus. Yeah. Gyrus, which is funny. So, so Jesus is on a boat. He gets to the other side, crowds gathering around him. He stayed close to the sea. There's a synagogue official named Jer- gyrus, who comes forward saying, uh, seeing him, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him saying, my daughter is at the point of death. Please come and lay your hands on her that she may get well. Actually, what it says in Greek is that she may be saved. Sozo mm. is I think the word, the, the, the word that's used. Um, this is ironic because the last time Jesus was at a synagogue, they tried to kill him. So it's interesting that, you know, the, the, literally the last synagogue he was at, they tried to put him to death. And now there's another synagogue that seems to have a different hmm. point of view. Or maybe it's just that when you're a guy like Jairus, he probably knows what's happening with the other synagogue officials. They're not that far away from where he was previously. But all of a sudden, when you're in the moment of crisis, when you're in the moment where you don't know where else to turn or what else to do, Sometimes that's where those social constraints or that kind of going along with what everybody else is doing, that all breaks down when you're desperate enough and when you need salvation enough and when you need God to guide you. He's like, I don't care what's happening. I don't care how people are going to view me. I don't care how those other synagogue officials are going to look at me. My daughter is dying. And I think this guy can save her, which is a beautiful um, 
act of faith, a moment of desperate, desperate faith. And I think there's something to be said for moments of desperate faith. So he says, uh, cool, let, let's go. He went off. A large crowd followed him. And then they, we meet a second woman. So this daughter, we find out, it doesn't say it here. We find out later on she's 12 years old. You pointed out the 12s. I love the 12s, man. So she's 12 years old. I have a 12-year-old daughter, so I like I feel that. Oh, That's, wow, there's yeah. something there. Yeah. On their way, we get a segue story, and it says, then as they were going, there was a woman who was afflicted with hemorrhages for 12 years. She had a flow of blood for 12 years. She has been suffering from this profound suffering for as long as the other daughter had been alive. That's how long she's had this suffering, which is which is profound, which means that one is probably going to speak into the other. Right? Yes. Yeah, when you see it so clearly, which is interesting, actually, as soon as you said uh, sozo. I think it's sozo. It's, it's the equivalent of saved, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so the, if you look, it's, uh, it's, it is sozo. Yeah, okay. But that's the response for both of them. Yes, yes. You stole my thunder, but yes, <laughs> I didn't, absolutely. Yeah, it's no, like, it's, it's, it, but that's important, though, because right. what, what the woman is experiencing on, well, what it's saying, in a certain sense, is death is death. Whether it's a death of suffering, a death of being cut off from your community, a death of being an outcast, or a physical death like this 12-year-old girl is experiencing, on a certain level, death is death. And we're terrified of all of it. And Jesus came to heal and save all of it. Death speaks to death in a certain sense. So what this woman is suffering for 12 years is um, parallel. It's related to what this 12-year-old girl has suffered, right? So um, she has been to many doctors. The thing that we need to know about um, the, the, the flow of blood, this hemorrhage that she's suffering with, to have this flow of blood and have it for 12 years, number one, I, I imagine it would be very painful and very draining. She would have probably been very pale because she's lost so much blood at such a continuous rate. There's the physical suffering, but then there's the social suffering because according to Leviticus, to have this condition, to have this affliction, she would have to be cut off from her community. This is something that renders someone, according to Leviticus, unclean, which is not a moral state. It's a ritual state. It's a, it's a social state. And anything that has to do with diminution of life, loss of life, loss of blood, loss of fluid, would render someone ritually unclean, which meant they couldn't have access to the temple, to the tabernacle, because that was the place that was meant to remind humanity of the Garden of Eden, where death wasn't there. It wasn't supposed to be there. And there would come a day when God would take death away again. Um, and so the temple was this place of life. And so any loss of life or diminution of life was not permitted in there. She has suffered this cutting off of her community for 12 years, which, again, aside from the physical pain, the emotional toil that must have had to put on her is just just profound. And so she hears about Jesus, right, coming in in the crowd, and she touched his cloak. And she said, she said if I touch his clothes, I shall be What'd you say? Sozo. Sozo. I will be saved. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed. And I love this. Jesus was aware at once that power had gone out of him. Hey, what, what happened? Hey. You, I, and this is where I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to get heretical. I don't think I'm going to, but I find this to I be. I sure a, hope you won't. I tr- I'm going to try not to, but I find this to be a fascinating moment. And I don't know how much Jesus knows and he's not saying because he does that sometimes. But I find this to be a fascinating um, collision of Jesus's divinity and his humanity. And his divinity, he has healing properties in his very being. But in his humanity, I'm not sure if he knows who received it. 
And I just think that's a very fascinating kind of intersection of divinity and humanity of like, oh, I literally healed someone who touched me, but I'm not quite sure who it was because I didn't see. And maybe he does know. Maybe he knows more than he's letting on. I'm not sure. But I kind of like that. I don't know. I, I find that just just fascinating. Yeah. I, I, uh, I There's some theologian somewhere who's yelling at their AirPods. <laughs> yeah, you know. He doesn't know. <laughs> I don't know. But so Jesus turns around and he says, who has touched my clothes? And the joke is, of course, the disciples are like, are you kidding me? Everybody's touching you. But the difference is that there is there is. You get the impression, Mary Healy talks about this, you get the impression that everyone's bumping into him, like violently, like shoving him, bumping him, you know, ramming into him because it's a crowded place. Someone has touched him with great purposefulness and great care and great gentleness. He doesn't notice all of the violent jostling, the sufferings of the world, so to speak. He mentioned, he real, he uh, he is conscious of the gentle touch, the purposeful, the, 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 um, the decisive touch um, and what oh, I was going to say something else about that. And I can't, I can't remember. Um, yeah, the, the woman then approached, I mean, the, the, the reality is that this woman is, is not where she's supposed to be because according to the law, like she's not supposed to be touching Mixing or interacting in a, in with big, anybody, in a big crowd, which yeah. is partially why I think that when she comes to him, it says she comes with fear and trembling. I think there's a fear and trembling over awe over what's happened, but I also think she realizes, like, everybody knows I'm not supposed to be here. You probably know I'm not supposed to be here. And if someone is unclean and they touch someone who is not unclean, then they become unclean. Which is the Unless, normal pathway. the normal pathway of cooties and things like this, right? Right. Versus the Lord, who is the one who solves it all. But what is her affliction? It is a participation in death. There's blood. There's life leaving her body. What is the antidote for death? Life. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. Well, no, I was hoping life. Right. But what is Jesus? Life. Yeah. He becomes the walking antidote for, he is the answer to what wisdom was grasping at. Yes. Was trying to figure, I know death is not the end. I know death doesn't have the final say. The Psalms say, I know death won't ultimately crush us. But we're not exactly sure what the antidote is. We know that it's wisdom. And we know that wisdom is righteousness. We know that it is seeking after the will of God. But humanity had not yet seen how that was going to make itself manifest. But this woman sees it. And she sees the antidote for my death is standing in front of me. If I just touch his cloak, I don't even need to touch him. I just need to touch something that he has touched. This is part of where we get our theology of relics, right? I just need to touch his clothing, and I will be healed from my death. And that is her realization that death will not have the final say over my life. How do you own the fact that death will not have the final say over our lives? We reach for Jesus. It's the only way that we can do it. And she does it. It's, it's amazing. And then he says, your faith has saved you. Um, Sozo is used again. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. And then we come back to Jairus' daughter. Jairus. 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 Jerry's daughter. Jerry, Jerry's daughter. Jerbear. <laughs> Yeah, which uh, so I know there's a connection, and this is always the this is always the the part. I mean, it's just clear, you know. She's the the woman with the hemorrhage, and then the, they're both women, and then the twelve year old, and she's dying, but then she gets raised up, she gets saved. Like, what is the connection? I don't know if I. I mean, I'm sure that there's way more than just one, but I don't really know what what the what the like. I see that they're both suffering from death. Mm -hmm. I see that there are both like like one actually literally one is through her suffering through social exile, mm -hmm. and um and that Christ is both the, the one who raises them both up. But why 
Y12 is, is this because I mean, my speculation is, is that in some ways they both become the, the images of Israel, the 12 tribes that say that, you know what, okay, in a certain sense, what, what was grown up is actually about to die. And that what was, what is unclean and unable to relate to the rest of the world is actually about to be made clean so that it can interact with the rest of the world. But those are, I mean, like, those are the things when I look at, I know there's a connection to the two twelves and, and that Christ's powerful touch is on both of them. But yeah. Well, I think in a certain sense, the the twelve year old girl. So yeah, the numbers. I mean, they they speak to uh, twelve is always used as a representation of Israel. So this is pointing, I suppose, toward the way in which Jesus is building the new Israel, and it's going to be a new Israel with no death, or in a certain sense, and with death isn't boss. I, I I don't know. There's something in Israelite related in the twelves, right. but I I think what's what the what they're showing and the way that Mark is sandwiching these stories together. The 12-year-old girl is expressing externally what's happening internally in the woman with the, the hemorrhaging woman. Mm. And when the woman touches Jesus, Jesus knows that healing has gone out of him. And the reason he has to find her, he's like, who touched me? He needs to, he could have just let it be. He could have just let it go. But it wasn't enough for Jesus to just give physical healing, right? So he finds her and he says, your faith has saved you. Now go in peace. Yes, be cured of your affliction. Be physically healed, but also go in peace. Be spiritually and internally healed as well. It's not enough for Jesus to simply physically heal. He wants to heal the internal as well. That's why what's happening with the hemorrhaging woman is speaking more broadly to what's going on. So the, the, it's, And what it's showing is, yes, what Jesus is doing for the physically dead 12-year-old girl he wants to do internally for every single human being, which is why he sandwiches the hemorrhaging woman smack in the middle, because it's not enough for him for physical healing alone. He wants a spiritual reality. He wants a, he wants a freedom from fear of death, death in all of its corollaries. He wants a freedom from the paralysis that death brings, which is why he has to seek out the woman with the hemorrhage. So what's happening to her is an embodiment of what, or, or rather, what's happening to the 12-year-old is a physical embodiment of what's happening internally for all of us, for the disciples, for Pete's sake, for this hemorrhaging woman who is also experiencing an external reality, but for every single person. And the only way that we can actually be healed of those internal afflictions is, again, by reaching out to Jesus. I think that's what the one is saying. It's not enough for Jesus just to heal us from the dead or to bring us back in the resurrection. He wants to re resurrect our bodies at the end of time and at the end of all things, but he wants to offer us the resurrection now, today, when we receive the Eucharist, when we reach out for him in the sacraments, when we move toward his will. He wants us to live the resurrection. Not He wants us to read Psalm 30 in the past tense today. We should be living in the hindsight of the resurrection even before we've experienced the physical resurrection. So we should be able to say, as the psalmist does in Psalm 30, I will praise you, Lord, for you have rescued me, even if we don't feel like we've been rescued yet, because our baptism actually has rescued us. His grace in our life has rescued us. We can speak in past tense, even if I've not fully felt um, the fullness of it yet. Am I making any sense? I'm yeah. just sort of saying things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And as you're talking, it kind of, I mean, I see, of course, Israel. I see the original, the, the 12 tribes of Israel in the midst of this. 
but then I also see the the newly the twelve apostles, yeah. the the newly um, the newly grafted church onto who are there, the, who are hanging out, right? And and so so both instances you actually have to press in. Jairus mm. went to go press in for his daughter to yeah. intercede for her, and uh, and then this woman with the hemorrhage, she had to press in to yeah. be able to actually do this to to experience the touch, and yes. that sometimes that that's that those are two methods by which we like Jesus actually becomes profoundly involved. Like Absolutely. is the, is that there's an intercessory, but there's also sometimes you just go hard yourself. Like, like the, the which is, which is an interesting thing, but, but it also is, it takes volition. It takes will. Not, yes. Neither one of them are just passive right. occasions on occasion, on, on a rare occasion that Jesus will come along and just be like, Hey, what's up? Bring that guy over here. But most of the time, everybody's expressing themselves. Yeah. Every time I can think of. Yeah, I'm. I'm just trying. To, the, the, the guy next to the pool of Siloam, he approaches him. That's the only. That's the only. One. Doesn't the guy? Does the guy do nothing? I can't remember. Yeah, you might be right. I don't think he cries out. I think no, that I he's just. Right. He's like. He's like. What are you doing here? And he's like, I'm hanging out, bro. <laughs> Which Jesus can do. It is also amazing that th- this is. This speaks to the Catholic theology of baptism that someone can actually stand on our behalf to be saved. Like our parents, when we were baptized as infants, those of us who were baptized as babies, we can't make that profession of faith. We can't cry out that we want to be saved, but our parents and our godparents can. Yep. This young girl, she didn't go to Jesus. She was not capable of going to Jesus to reach out to be healed, but her father could go on her behalf and she could receive salvation and receive healing through that act of faith, like you said. But that's kind of beautiful. Yeah. That's That tells me, it gives me the hope that, oh, we can pray for people. Even if someone doesn't pray for themselves or doesn't know to pray for themselves, my prayers can actually be efficacious yep. because we can speak on on behalf of. I also, last point, um, when we begin to tap into this healing of death, this resurrection that we're given, Oftentimes, the response of the world is what happens here. When Jesus says, why are you crying and weeping? The child is not dead but asleep. And they do what? They ridiculed him and they mocked him. him. Because it's one thing to see the physical manifestation of a healing from death. It's another thing to see the internal manifestation of a healing from death. That's less clear to the world. And oftentimes when we declare that we have been healed of this affliction we have been we don't have to be slaves to fear and to our own sin and everything else oftentimes the response of the world will be a rejection and a ridicule and a mocking Mm. and jesus is trying to prepare us for that jesus is not daunted by the ridicule he's not bothered or disturbed by the fact that people are making fun of him it's happened to him before it's going to happen to him again and when when we were reading this uh, when i was reading this on the way into the podcast today I, i um I, uh, on, the, I, on your commute, on my commute um, to the from the f- <laughs> four feet um, to this chair, um, yeah, I just saw Jesus. He says, and then he put them all out. Like, but I saw him in a very gentle way. Like they're ridiculing him, yeah. and he's like, "No, it's just time for you to go." Just like, just, just go over here. Yeah, just like he didn't like get cords and whips and like no, he's like <laughs> no, he's like yeah, you can make fun of me, but we're just gonna go this way for a second. We're he's moving. undaunted by it. Right, right. We're yeah. moving, we're moving, and we're stopping. <laughs> nice. Nicely done. Yeah. Well, oh, 
Well, speaking of moving, moving, and we're stopping, um, we uh, invite you to check back in and uh, come the fall. And we yeah. thank you for all of your uh, dedicated listening. And thank you for please pray for us as we uh, we kind of just need a break. And um, and uh, you know Scott uh, at the Camp Boy T was almost doubled in yes. its size, ninety so percent like, growth this year. Yeah, ninety percent. That's pretty epic. And so. Yeah. So we just we just love you and we thank you for your dedication and uh, and and please pray for us as we discern over these next couple of months what the podcast ought to look like in the future and what um, yeah what what uh, what what gift and what service we can provide for the church going yep. forward absolutely so we will see you soon have a wonderful summer and uh, keep us in your prayers absolutely God bless you bye 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 the Word on the Hill podcast is a production of the Aquinas Institute for Catholic Thought here in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. You can find us online at www.thomascenter.org slash A-I-C-T. If you like this podcast, please rate and review us on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. Uh, that is the way that we can grow and get the word out to more people. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next week.